Judges chapter 4, but we're going to start with verse 10. We got down to that point in our study the last time. Uh, remember, we've looked in chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 4, at the first four or so judges. And I say four or so because there are some kind of uh, differences of opinion throughout the, the Christian world with regard to whether or not Shamgar should be included as one of the judges. And also, there's some who think that another man that is mentioned in those first four, uh, nine verses of chapter four, uh, Barack, not Barack Obama, but Barack, this Barack in Deborah's time, as also a judge. But I don't really think that that's as likely uh, although he does play a very important role, uh, it is very clear that in that portion from chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, it is Deborah who is a judge. She's also a prophetess, which is only a second occurrence of uh, a woman prophesying in, in the Bible. The first was Miriam. So, Deborah stands out as a very important uh, player in these early days of the time of the judges. And by this time, by the time Deborah and Barak are on the scene, uh, over 140 or so years have passed by uh, since Joshua had passed away. And there is, is already evidence of a pattern that is going to be very, very clear as we continue through the book of Judges, where they would find themselves in a very good position, they're prospering, and then as they continue to prosper, they tended to forget God, turn away from God, to serve idols, and that angered God, and God brought judgment against them for that turning away, and then after a season of time, they would cry out to God in their oppression, and God would hear them and bring a deliverer or a judge to take care of the problem that they were facing. And then they would have a period of rest for sometimes as much as 80 years, as was the case in the end of chapter 3, before Deborah came on the scene. But now, in this portion of Scripture that we're looking at tonight, Deborah has apparently prophesied with regard to the oppression that they were facing in her day. That oppression was coming from the king of Canaan, known as Jabin. And he lived in a very large city named Hazor. You may remember our discussion in chapter 2 or so of the book of Judges, uh, uh, the Joshua, where uh, there was a city by that name. And that city was considered to be a very large city. And it was burned by the uh, armies of Israel when they took the land. And... Now Hazor has been rebuilt, apparently, and there is an archaeological tell in Israel that they know to be that location where Hazor was in the northernmost part of the nation of Israel today. It's over 200 acres in size, and to compare that to, say, a city like Jericho, which was one of the major walled cities in the land of Canaan, that... Uh, size of that city was only about 13 acres. So Hazor was a very, very large community. And this Jabin was king, and he was oppressing the people of Israel. 
and he had a general whose name was um, tell you in a minute <laughs> I've lost place but I'll, I'll find it Sisera there I don't know why I was just blank on that but that's his name Sisera he was a general of Jabin's army and he was the one that was the primary source of problems in that region of northern Israel. So now we have this prophecy that Deborah has made, and it is a very specific prophecy that the Lord had said, according to what was recorded in verse 6, go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. That was God speaking through the prophetess, apparently. And we saw that Barak was a general in the Israeli army, a leader, but he apparently did not fully trust that that was from God. And so he was reluctant to bring his armies to that place. But Deborah called him on that. And so Deborah said, has not God said this? And so Barak apparently, although some people think he was a wimp because of his reluctance to do this, the scripture doesn't hold that opinion at all. In fact, he was listed in the book of Hebrews as a very great man in our hall of faith in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. So Barak was just reluctant to go, most likely because he did not trust that this was from God. But Deborah encouraged him to go and trust that it was indeed. But Barak said, all right, I'll go if you go. And so Deborah agreed, I'll go with you. But because of your having chosen to have me come with you, the glory from the victory that you will have is not going to be your glory. That glory is going to go to a woman. And that's where we left off at verse 9 in our study. Now tonight, we're going to continue from that point at verse 10 where it says, And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zayanaim, which is beside Kadesh. Now, here in verse 11, it re references the father-in-law of, Mo uh, of Moses, which in other places is Jethro. Here he's called Hobab. But this individual is a descendant of Moses' father-in-law. And remember, that, again, back in the book of Joshua, when Caleb took his portion of the land in Judah, a part of that land was given to the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenites. And they lived down there in that southern area of Judah. And now it tells us that this particular individual, Heber, has moved from that southern area all the way up to the northern area in the territory that is listed here. Uh, and that's an important part of the story. He's near the city of Kadesh, which is pretty much where the battle is going to take place right in that general area in the Jezreel Valley. And so it's important, although he doesn't say anything more about that until a little bit later, this man 
plays a very important role, Heber, in this story that we're going to be looking at tonight. Verse 12 says, And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera has been made aware, and now he's going to bring his army into the Jezreel Valley from where he is located, uh, not too awfully far from there at Harosheth Hagoyim, which is just a short distance away from that territory where the Kenite man that we just mentioned, Heber, is living. It says in verse 13, So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him, from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Rise up, for this is a day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now we're going to see as we get into chapter 5, the primary reason that Sisera was not successful, even though he had 900 chariots, was that the river Kishon plays a very important role also in this story. Today... It's not a river any longer. It's just basically a small stream or a brook. But in that day, it was a very large river that flowed into the Mediterranean Sea. And in a very heavy rain, it was very quickly flooded over into the plains of the Jezreel Valley. And when it did so, the whole plains area would turn into a very muddy mess, like a swamp. And that's, as we're going to be told in chapter 5, one of the reasons why their chariots were not effective in this battle. Again, Barak and his 10,000 were up on the Mount Tabor overlooking the Jezreel Valley. They had a very, very strategic position and they would have, if the armies of Sisera had tried to go up the mountain, they wouldn't have been successful with their chariots to do so but they had enough cavalry, uh, infantry rather, to engage in a battle on the mountain. But it was to the advantage of the people of Israel because they had the higher ground. But instead of allowing for Sisera to make that move, we're told that Barak and his troops came down from Mount Tabor into the valley. That was a very, very unusual move because it's there if things had worked out for Sisera with dry ground. Their chariots would have been like the tanks of today against a bunch of guys with swords and shields. They would have run them over. Uh, it would have been a terrible disaster for Israel. As it turned out, although that battle did take place in the valley, God helped them out a great deal in that particular valley, just like he said he would do. He had promised through the prophetess the Lord God will win this battle for you. And that's always the case when God sends you forward to do a work in the name of Jesus in our day. He goes before us. He has promised us that we are more than conquerors. And I'm so blessed to think about the fact that when we have been given such a title as 
those who are more than conquerors. It tells me that the battle is already won. That's why we're more than conquerors. We can become conquerors if we win a battle, but we are more than conquerors because the battle's already been won for us. Keep that in mind. That's exactly what happened with regard to this battle, as was the case with so many of the other battles recorded in the Word of God. So Barak, it tells us in verse 16, pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, and not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So there is the rest of the story. This is why he introduced uh, this man Heber a uh, short time ago in verse 10. He was a friend of the king of the Canaanites, Jabin. He was known by Sisera as well, as we'll find out. And Sisera, having fled away from the battle scene, went into that community of Kadesh, or the uh, Zayanim rather, next to Kadesh, where, where Heber lived. He knew the place. He knew that he had a friend there, even though it was in Israeli territory. Remember, Heber is not an Israelite. He is a Kenite. He is associated with the Israelites through his relationship with his ancestor, the father-in-law of Moses, Jethro, or Hobab in this case. But he goes to this man's tent in his home of Zayanaim, and he believes that he's going to be able to find shelter there. Verse 18 says, And Jael, this is Heber's wife, went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. And then she said to her, Please, or he said to her, rather, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. She was protecting him, covered him, gave him some Warm milk, it wasn't something you pull out of the refrigerator in those days. Uh, most people believe it was a very popular, still, beverage in Bedouin communities today, where it's uh, kind of like a light yogurt. It's, it's basically fermented milk that's got some curds, curds in it, and it's uh, kept in a, in a way, sweetened it uh, with certain... Uh, additional things that they put into it, and it's a beverage that they still drink, and it's likely that was what she gave him. Um, he was tired. He was worn out from the battle, and he was thirsty, so having that beverage that she gave him was a very, very calming, soothing beverage for him to drink. And as it turned out, it did the job that she intended it to do. Verse 20 says, He said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground. For he was fast asleep and weary, and so he died. So she gave him that drink. He was laying down at the, on the floor of the tent and he fell asleep very quickly, 
And she took advantage of the fact that he was asleep and grabbed a tent peg, put it against his temple and drove it through his head with one blow of the hammer. Pretty brave woman. Turning, turning out to not be the friend that Sisera thought that she was. Now, I'm not really sure. I don't think there's any place, uh, that I know of at least, where Heber objects to this. Um, in fact, we're not told anything about Heber's reaction. But, remember back in the previous week's study where we were told that the promise was made by Deborah that Barak would win the battle, but he would not get the glory. It would go to a woman. Well, Jael is that woman. And so it says in verse 22, And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel, and the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. And that took a short while, obviously, but the victory was won. Jabin was defeated. He no longer had a general that was able to lead his armies, and they were at peace, finally, against the Canaanites. God delivered them. Deborah was Perfectly, absolutely correct in everything that she had promised. Now, chapter 5 is a most interesting chapter to me. And it happens to be all about what just went on and more besides. Chapter 5 is one of the many songs in the Word of God. One of the first songs, as far as I know, the first song that was sung by the people of Israel was sung immediately after they crossed the Red Sea. And they saw the armies of the Egyptians completely destroyed because the sea came down upon them. And they sang a song there, led by Moses and Miriam, praising the Lord for his protection. The horse and the rider were thrown into the sea. You can read that in the book of Exodus. It's a beautiful song. It's a short song compared to this song, but it's a song nonetheless. But one of the reasons I'm intrigued by the songs of Scripture is that, from my perspective, it is one of the most wonderful ways to memorize Scriptures. I have a lot of songs that I have learned through the years that I've served the Lord. Many of them come directly from the Word of God in the form of short choruses, very easy to sing, very easy to remember the words. And I'm pleased to be able to recall so many of them when I read through the book of Psalms, for instance, which is, by the way, almost entirely a book of songs recorded with the purpose of being sung uh, with either accompaniment of stringed instruments or wind instruments, some percussion. It was a a, a beautiful way for the people of Israel to be able to remind themselves of the things that God has done. And it's certainly a great tool for us as well to remind us of those things that God has done through the singing of those beautiful passages of Scripture. I'm not a very good memorizer of Scripture. If I try to memorize 
uh, a lot of scripture. I just don't have, for some reason, the ability to do that very easily. It does not come easily for me. But when I have learned a song that comes from scripture, it just seems to flow so easily from me because it's there in my heart with a melody. And that's what I believe they intended for this to be done as a melody that would be remembered so that they could sing it and recall the history that's involved in this particular time. Again, Psalms is one of the most common of places where you can find the various songs that are, are given. Solomon also wrote Proverbs, as we know. He wrote some 3,000 Proverbs, we're told, but he wrote several songs as well. And one of those that we attribute to Solomon is the book that we have in the Old Testament called Song of Solomon. There are songs in the New Testament as well. Paul and uh, Silas were in the jail cell. They were singing songs, hymns. Paul says that it's a good thing for the believers to, to just rejoice in the Lord in the singing of psalms and hymns of praise. In the book of Revelation, we have one of the songs of Moses, and that song is given to us as a reminder of how great and wonderful our God is and how the nations will come and worship before him. There's also a song that's recorded in the early part of the book of Revelation that talks about the fact that we will be singing that song in glory, saying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And all of those things are just wonderfully put together for our benefit so that we could easily memorize the words and sing praise to our God from His Holy Word. And I just so enjoy doing that, and I encourage all of us to really consider finding words of God's Word in the midst of the songs that we sing. Find out where those words are located and then go to that portion of Scripture and just sing along with the reading of the Word of God. Well, here in this portion of Scripture in chapter 5, it tells us in verse 1, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, when leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praises to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured, the clouds also poured water, the mountains gushed before the Lord, this Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. He's they're, they're talking about something in their past that had taken place when God delivered the people of Israel out of the hands of the uh, armies of the Edomites. And, and there was great victory because God went before them. God went before Joshua uh, when they went into the land. And remember, he rained down hailstorms and thunder and lightning and, and all of the things that God did in the battle to uh, confuse the enemy. And he kept the sun from going down for a period of a whole day so that they could win the battle. All of those things are reminded, uh, we were given us in the Word of God as a reminder of what God has done for His people and what He still is wanting to do for His people today. So this is the beginning of this great song that Deborah and Barak have given, and they start to sing. And in verse 6 it says, In the days of Shamgar, and remember we read this last week, because Shamgar in verse, or, or rather chapter 
3 only had one verse of Scripture attributed to him. We know very little about him. And this is the only other place that we can find any information about Shamgar is what we see here in verse 6 and following of chapter 5. Uh, Shamgar, remember, killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And now it says in verse 6 here in chapter 5, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, also the woman that just took care of Sisera, the highways were deserted, and the travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel, and they chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. All of, us, all of this to say that in that period of time, after Ehud's death, that 80 years of rest, they still had some problems. They did not have a lot of military equipment. Uh, in the day of these people, in those early days of the judges, Israel didn't really have a large capability of making their own metals, especially iron. The Philistines had well advanced in iron manufacturing. And the few implements that they could get were given or bought from the Philistines and they would be farm implements primarily for plows and uh, ox goads for the sharpened edge of a spade or, or the uh, spear that, that they could use to uh, use as a goad to move the oxen along. But they would not make for the people of Israel military weapons. So they limited Israel in the amount of weaponry they had. And so that's why it says here uh, that there were so few who had shield or spear. Among 40,000 in Israel, there was hardly any at all. And it tells us also the condition. The village life had ceased because there was trouble in the highways. They couldn't go from one place to another without getting uh, in danger from being robbed or, or harmed in some way. So life was tough during those years of uh, the Philistines and the Canaanites' invasions of the nation of Israel. And even though they had had rest, now they're under this burden again. And they cried out to, to the Lord, and God has answered them by bringing Deborah along. So I, Deborah, arose, she said. And she's just identifying herself as a mother in Israel. I like that. She doesn't think of herself as a great prophetess or the judge of Israel. She's just a mother, just a common woman who is willing to be used by God, as was the case with all of these men that we've seen up to this point. Ehud was a farmer. Shamgar was a farmer. Most of them were very, very common laborers in the region in which they lived. But God chose them. He gave them an ability and he anointed them. Remember, it is Othniel who we're told was just blessed with the power of the Holy Spirit that came upon him for that particular service. And so we find here that Deborah is just recognizing the fact that though she's a person of low estate, God chose to use her. I'm reminded too of King David. You know, when, when King David spoke about himself, he didn't go around saying, I am the great king of Israel. 
I am the, the great shepherd of the, my people. He did say, I am a shepherd. But he also said, when he identified himself as one that he wanted the people to remember, he said, I am the sweet psalmist of Israel. He preferred to be known as the one who sang songs, who gave such great encouragement to his people through the music that he wrote. It's a wonderful thing. This is how Deborah is also with regard to her thinking of herself. And we're told in the New Testament, by the way, and this is a good thing, that we should also think no more highly of ourselves than we ought. And so I believe that that's also proven here in the character of Deborah. It says in verse 9, My heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly, willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. There were some who came to acknowledge that God was in this and that they wanted to be able to do the things that God called them to do. And they were willing to fight for him. So it says in verse 10, Speak you who ride on white donkeys, who sit in judges' attire, and who walk along the road far from the noise of the archers, among the watering places. There they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and lead your captives away, O son of Abinoam. So, this is an encouragement in the song of preparing for battle and, and being able to trust in the Lord. Now, going back just a bit to verse 11, I just want to make a quick comment with regard to the translation that I'm using, which said again, from the noise of the archers. Now, in some of your translations, you probably have something like the ones who divide flocks. The reason for that discrepancy is because we don't know what that word really, really meant. There are some Hebrew words that we just have to kind of put together based on context. And that's one of those areas. So the one translator group said, well, I think it sounds like they're talking about the dividing of flocks because of such and such a thing, that the righteous acts of the villagers and the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates, talking about everyday life. And, and then the other translators thought, well, no, I think that is a t talking about the fact that the, you don't hear the noise of the archers within the walls of the city. So that's why they have those two different translations, and it's okay, either one of them would work, and it's not really uh, taking away from the context of the text. Well, verse 13 says, Then the survivors came down, the people against the nobles. The Lord came down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim were those whose roots were in Amalek. After you, Benjamin, with your peoples, from Maker, rulers came down, and from Zebulun, those who hear the recruiter's staff, and the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As Issachar, so was Barak, sent into the valley under his command. Among the divisions of Reuben, there was great resolve of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings of the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore and stayed by his inlets. Zebulun is a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. Now take note of the fact that not all of the tribes participated in this battle. 
she commends those who did, but she also speaks very, very negatively toward those who did not. As for instance, it tells us Dan just stayed in his ships. They didn't go to the battle. And Gilead stayed behind beyond the Jordan. And why did that happen? Because they did not want to help. Zebulon, though, was a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. They entered into the battle uh, knowing that it could cost many lives. And so did Naphtali also. And they were the ones who led the entire group. But they did have help from Ephraim. They did have help from Benjamin. And, and they had help from uh, others as well. Judah is not mentioned here. Neither is Simeon. So not all of the twelve tribes were involved. Only those were that were more local to the territory that was if, if affected by the ruling of the King Jabin from the far north. That's important to realize as we move forward in our study of the book of Judges. Not all of the judges uh, were judges over the entire nation, and most of them were not. It's important to understand that a lot of these were territorial skirmishes that were very, very limited in scope, but they were considered to be of great importance to the whole nation because of the heroics that were involved by the judges when they came to deliver the people. Moving on again further into the song, it says in verse 19, The kings came and fought. Then the kings of Canaan fought in Teanach by the waters of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. That ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. Oh, my soul, march on in strength. So here we're told that the river Kishon overflowed its banks, as we had mentioned earlier. And this, in this song, we get the details that weren't given to us in chapter 4. But it was partly because of the way God allowed the waters of the river to overflow and make it so that the chariots would sink into the mire. They couldn't get anywhere with them. That's why they had to dismount from their chariots and try to escape as best they could back to their hometown but they weren't able to make it without being slaughtered by the Israeli army. So even though the Israelites didn't have a lot of military weapons, they could take their farm implements and, and uh, everything that they could find that was able to be used in a battle, and they would be able to then win the victory that they were able to win. It says in verse 22, Then the horse's hooves pounded, the galloping, galloping of his steeds, and then it says in verse 23 something very interesting. Curse Miraz, said the angel of the Lord. That's an interesting statement. Miraz is a community not far from the valley of Jezreel. Apparently, they did not participate in the battle either. But notice that the curse of Miraz is coming from the angel of the Lord. And remember, when we see that phrase, the angel of the Lord, the vast majority of times it's a referral to Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. I'm reminded in the New Testament, Jesus said to a couple of cities, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For the things that were done in you, if they had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Woe unto you, Miraz! Curse you, because you did not help. They did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. 
So the judgment of this city known as Miraz is given here in this very, very short verse 23. Nothing more is said about it. We know nothing more about the city of Miraz other than the fact that God himself put a curse upon him. Verse 24 says, Most blessed among women is Jael. Now, just as an aside note, it's not very likely that Jael was even an Israelite woman. She may have been. She may have been an Israelite who married a Kenite. That's very likely, a very possible uh, thing, in fact. But, but it's no guarantee that she is an Israelite. We're not told. But her name is based upon the Lord God. So her parents, if they named her that, unless she's gotten that name from some other source, they believed in God, and they gave her a godly name. The last two letters, El, is a reference to Elohim. And the first two letters, Jah, is a reference to Yahweh. So that's where her name comes from. And again, we're not really exactly sure what her nationality was, but she is indeed the wife of Heber, the Kenite. And he, she says in this song, Blessed is he among, is she among women in tents. She, he asked for water, she gave milk. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. She pounded Sisera, she pierced his head, she split and struck through his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Pretty graphic, but again, as part of the song, it becomes their history. It becomes a way for them to remember the details of how J.L. was able to be a part of winning the victory in that battle. Remember, Barak also was very victorious in defeating Sisera's army. But it was J.L. who got the glory for the final act of destroying this general of Jabin the king. Now, verses 28 and following is the psalm writer looking into the heart of the mother of Sisera. And she's wondering, why is it taking so long for him to come home? Read it with me. It's in verse 28. It says, The mother of Sisera looked through the window and cried out through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarries the clatter of his chariots? Her wisest ladies answered her. Yes, she answered herself. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil to every man a girl or two? That's an interesting thought. You know, kind of gives you a sense of the kind of people that these Canaanites were. For, for Sisera, plunder of dyed garments, plunder of garments embroidered and dyed, two pieces of dyed embroidery for the neck of the looter. That's what they were thinking. That's why it's taking so long. But obviously, she will find that that wasn't the reason he will never come home. Finally, the song ends with these, these words, Thus, let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. So it's a remarkable song, this song dedicated to the victory that was had in the Valley of Jezreel by Barak and, and Deborah and all of the troops that were with them. Lastly, it says, So the land had rest for 40 years. 
So another time of rest has now come upon the people of Israel as a result of this victory. Again, we're reminded that it is, yes, cyclical or cyclical in the sense that it seems to go back through the same series of events. They prosper. They forget God. God brings a, oppression but at the hands of one of the people groups around them. They cry out to God. He sends a deliverer who delivers them and they enter into a time of rest again. But remember also that it is a downward spiral. It gets worse and worse and worse as each generation continues to go through that same cycle. It's a certain warning to us as well. And I know that uh, you know, we've lived in a time of prosperity in this nation. And I know that as we have prospered, one of the results of that prosperity is a turning away from God in large number. And we have continued down that very, very steep, slippery slope to a place where we may not turn back. But if this nation does call out to God, I'm convinced that God would hear it and God would respond. He always has. He's shown that to be the case through his people Israel. Our own history demonstrates that over and over again. But perhaps we've gone too far. I don't know for sure. I hope not. But if we have, what does that mean for us? How are we to deal with such things? Are we to just sit back and say, oh well, that's the way it is, and just continue on hoping for the rapture and doing nothing until he comes? Or do we make a stand? Take a stand? Do we shine the light? Do we speak boldly in defense of God's Word? Do we take a stand against terrorists like Hamas and Hezbollah? Do we take a stand with Israel? They're not necessarily a perfect people. I can say for sure they're not a perfect people. They don't know their God like they ultimately will know their God. But they are God's people. And I suggest to you that we should be standing with them. But this nation is definitely moving down a path where it seems like more and more people are rising up against the people of God. And that may result in more bloodshed. It may result in more catastrophe. It may result in terrible anarchy. It may result in other nations who are our enemies thinking that we are weakened to the state where we can be defeated by them in a huge attack against us to weaken us to the point where we cannot do anything to help Israel. If that's what happens, it's because God allows it. But we're here. We're here for a purpose. And I believe that purpose is very clear in the Word of God. Shine the light. Be salt. Be ready in season and out of season to give an answer.
to all those who will ask, what's going on? And I'm sure that they will, one of these days, come to us and say that very thing. I know that you know something that I'm not aware of. Please tell me. So let's be ready to answer and help them to find God in these last days. Amen? Grace and peace.